As we come to the scripture, let me ask you to turn to 1 John in chapter 2. I want to read verses uh, 3 through 11. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11. We took up 3 through 6 last week with Ryan Randolph, and I'll pick up uh, from verse 7 on this morning for our message. But as we find that, let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we trust uh, that it's alive, as you say. Uh, It's alive, and it works in us. It goes deep within our minds and our hearts, exposes that which is false about our thinking and living, and lays before us that which is true and gives us the strength even, the grace to live it. We trust that this word, as the Apostle Peter says, is imperishable. It's an imperishable seed that's in us, and we trust it will live forevermore. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John in chapter 2, please, verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new command but an old command that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want to draw your attention to uh, this verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And the reason that John is writing about this is that he's writing to bring to this church and to us then as well, assurance. Assurance that we have eternal life, that we have fellowship with God, that we belong to him, that he's accepted us, forgiven us, taken us into his family. And this whole notion of assurance is a significant one. It's an important one for us. Um, Verse three of chapter two, and by this We know that we've come to know him. See, if we're really going to live out this Christian life, we really need to know that we know him and be assured of that. You see, it's possible to believe you're a Christian and yet you're not. There's some way of assurance, but shouldn't. And there were those, you see, in John's day who thought they were believers, but they weren't. And as we read in our first Sunday, as we took this up and we'll read again as we come to this portion in chapter two, that they left because they really weren't of us, as John says. They really didn't have fellowship with us. They didn't have fellowship with the Father. They really weren't believers. They thought they did. 
Even as he writes this, they probably still think they do, but they don't. So John wants to write to the church and say, this is how we know that we know him. And so he begins to lay it out. And having this assurance is of great value to us, of course. It's important because we're called as believers to comfort others in their distress. How can we comfort others if we're not certain ourselves that we are really in the faith? Not only that, but we're called at times to to sacrifice and perhaps even sacrifice greatly, even sacrifice our own lives for the sake of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to do that unless you're one who really knows that you know him, that you really do belong to him? When we think of the great saints, if you read through Hebrews chapter 11 and go through the, 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 the hall of faith, as we call it, the great saints of the Old Testament, whether it be Noah or Abraham or, or, or David or Daniel, and you realize what they were called to do, they could do because they knew that they knew him. In fact, Daniel puts it like this. He says, the people who know their God stand firm and take action. Certainly he knew God and certainly he stood firm and certainly took action. This was uh, the epitome of, David, of Daniel's life. And so, so, so we see it. We need to know that we know him. It's a curious case. In fact, every time I'm reading through the scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, and I come to Matthew 11, it's sort of the end of Matthew 10, I begin to smile because I love what's coming next. Because what comes next in the opening verses of, of Matthew chapter 11 is the story about John the Baptist. And of all the people that should have been assured uh, that Jesus was really the Christ, it should have been John the Baptist. In fact, there's a story early on when, 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 when um, John's mother, Elizabeth, was carrying John when he was in her womb and Mary Elizabeth's cousin was carrying Jesus in hers that Mary comes into the room and by the Holy Spirit John in his mother leaps for joy so you think well he knew it from that and of course he would know it as Jesus came for baptism and he saw the dove come and heard the voice this is my son in whom I'm well Please, but Matthew 11, John's in prison. He's in prison for what he's been preaching. And so by way of his own disciples, he sends to Jesus this question, are you the one or should we wait for another? And I think, that's just like me. Right? When difficulties come, I think, really, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus, of course, sent back word to John. Yes, I'm the one. He sent it back uh, in a way that John would hear it and understand it and know, yes, he really is the one. He really is the Messiah. I see what he's been doing uh, and and all of that. And, And so Jesus wanted John to be certain to strengthen him, to give him strength. And so, so now the apostle John is doing the same thing. He's writing to us. He's writing to them to say, this is how you know that, that you know him. And if you read through commentaries or uh, the such on the first epistle of John, you'll find that often the suggestion is that that John gives three tests. Uh, The first one is is what's known as a a doctrinal test. What do you really believe? You must believe what is true about the gospel. You must believe what is true about Jesus and about yourself and all of that. You must have right belief, right understanding. It's crucial. And, and, and then you, there's a, a moral test that's often referred to. That is, your obedience. Uh, do you obey him? And then thirdly, this test that we'll see today, this test of love. Do you love one another? 
Now, as you read through this first epistle uh, of John, it's, 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 a, it's a short read. It's, it's only five chapters. And he keeps going over these. It's not like he takes the first one and deals with the second one. He deals with the third one. He deals with it. He kind of reiterates. He goes, does a little on the first, a little on the second, a little on the third, and then goes back and, and goes through them again. So these will come up again. I won't say everything I could possibly say about this particular test today because I don't need to because we'll come up in a different context in a few weeks again. But the first one we saw uh, in, in, in the first uh, chapter beginning with verse 5 he says, this is the message. He says, this is the message that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We've got to begin there. You've got to believe that, that God is holy. Because if we're going to know that we know him, we need to know him, that he's holy, that he's, he's light and there's no darkness in him at all. And we also have to see ourselves in relation to him, that we're not holy. And we enter into fellowship with him and we know that we're um, in fellowship with God, not because we deny our sin, which some in the days of John were doing. It's not that we deny our sinfulness, but rather we rely upon Christ. We rely upon Christ that he's our advocate, that he's the one who stands in glory. He's the one who stands for us so that everything that is true of him then is true of us. Ryan Randolph last Sunday uh, helped tremendously in our understanding as he talked about union with Christ, as he talked about the fact that we're joined together with him. And as Jesus stands in the, in, in, before the Father, we're in him. And so his righteousness is our righteousness. His death for our sin is our death for our sin. In fact, you know the big word that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the wrath of God, even as he pays the penalty for our sin. You've got to believe that. That's the very foundation of our, of our assurance. Whatever else is happening, you go back, we go back to that. Who is Jesus? What did he do? I rely upon him. Yes. And then the second test, well, if you're in him, do you walk as he walked? That's how John puts it here in verse 3. And by this we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Uh, that doesn't mean we do it perfectly. We're doing all of this in the context of forgiven sinners. We're doing all of this in the context of not denying our sin. We see it, we recognize it, we confess it, we receive forgiveness and walk in him. But the sense is something has happened. Something really has happened. Not only has the penalty for our sin been paid, but its power, its dominion over us has been broken. And, and we have a whole new orientation to life. And so our desire now is to please him, to love God, to do that which pleases him. And when we displease him, we know it. And we confess it, we receive forgiveness. And we walk in him. So we believe it, we know the message and we obey his commandments. And now this one. He says, if you really know him, then you'll love each other. You'll love each other. We see it in a positive way in verse 8 stated, as I, as I mentioned, or I mean verse 10, 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no darkness. He says it in a, in a negative way in verses 9 and 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness in verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, the way John lays this out is fascinating because he begins by saying this. He begins by saying, this isn't a new commandment. It's an old one, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you've heard. It's quite likely that the dissenters, those who were against John in this church, were saying to everybody else, he's teaching something new here about loving each other. And John says, no, I'm not teaching you anything new at all. You've had this from the beginning. I mean, first of all, it's in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19. So if you're reading Leviticus and you think there's nothing there for you, there is. Uh, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Parenthetically, realize how, well, realize it's impossible to fulfill that command, to really love another as you love yourself, to be as concerned for them as you are for you. It's the goal, of course. So it's, it's, it's not new at all. In fact, it's not new because J- Jesus had said the very same thing. Two commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you, that you love each other. In fact, John says in chapter three and verse 11 here, he says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So from the very beginning of the gospel, from the very beginning of the apostles' preaching, it was love each other. That was the ethic by which they were to live. That is the, how they were to treat, uh, to treat one another. But then John goes on to say, in verse eight, he says, at the same time, it's a new commandment I'm writing to you. <laughs> so he says, it's, it's old, but it's, it's new. So then we have to ask, in what sense is this commandment new? Well, it's new. First of all, because Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. I mean, if it was difficult enough to love each other as we love ourselves, but now to love as Jesus has loved us, you see. That's the newness. But also this. He says, At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He said, said, which is true in him and in you. You see, Jesus is, is the model for our love. He's the model for it. It's true in him. What's new here is that no one has ever loved like Jesus has loved no one. It's n- that kind of love had never been seen before. Surely God loved his people, Israel, in the old covenant. And, and, and we can see his love as he delivered them and provided for them and won battles for them and, and disciplined them and even brought them back and was gracious to them and all of that. But now we see love on, on a grander scale even in the person of Christ. I mean, think about his mission. His mission was to leave glory to leave that realm, to leave that place where he was honored as God, glorified in his very being, 
in the heavenlies with the Father and the Spirit who knew no weakness at all. And his mission was to become like us, to, to take upon himself our weakness and, 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 and then to be rejected and humiliated. Not only was he not treated like God, but he was even ill-treated as a man. All of that for love's sake. That's why this morning we began our service with a call to worship from Philippians chapter 2. This expression, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That kind of love. And he said it was true in him, this kind of love, you see. No one's ever seen that before. But now we're being called to love as he loved us. I mean, you picture Jesus. First of all, in the, that upper room when he was with his disciples. And we see sort of in picture form as he's, as he's there with them, as he strips himself down, he humbles himself takes off his clothes all but his, his, his particular his one garment and he wraps around a towel, a, towel, a towel around his waist and he washes their feet and he humbles himself and he says, I'm loving you like this, now love each other like this. But, but then we see it even greater when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's facing the wrath of God because of love and, and we see it. We see the drama and the trauma of that moment upon, upon Jesus and then he goes to the cross Robert Murray McShane, who's a great pastor of a couple of centuries ago, was dearly loved by all who knew him, though he lived a very short life of something like 29 years, I believe. He writes this about Jesus and his love. He says, Jesus was without any comforts of God on the cross. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken away from him, and him now. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, depart from me, you cursed who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God said the same to him. Ah, oh, this, this is the hell which Jesus suffered. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is, for me for me. He was forsaken for us, you see. For all those who would believe in him. For all those the Father had given him. That's this love, you see. That's the newness of it. It was in him. And then notice this. John says, this same love that was true, and that word true means real. It doesn't necessarily mean true as opposed to false. It means true as opposed to fake. It's real, this, this 
This is real. This love in Jesus, of Jesus, is in us. It's in us. It's true in him. It's true in us. Romans chapter five says this. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, John says that which is true in him, the love of Christ is true. It's true in us. No wonder the apostle would write, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. How could you not be? How could you not be when the love of Christ, that love of Christ, the love that no one has ever seen, not like that, is, is in you. True, really, it is. For real. Well, it's amazing to think that the love of Christ is in us. I melt before these commandments to love, and to love as, to love my neighbor as myself, to love as Christ has loved me. And I feel utterly bankrupt, you see, until I realize something that honestly isn't readily apparent, that his love is in me, that it really is. It isn't something written on a stone that I look at and it's external to me. But now I realize in the new covenant it's written on my heart because Christ is there, you see. I'm joined with him. He's in me and I am in him. I know I fail to really explain that or lay that out I don't know what else to say other than it's true as he said it's true, it's real within us perhaps we only see it when it's tested when we're really in a place where we really must love in a way that's so different than we would otherwise even think to behave but to love as Christ has loved and it isn't you see that I'm simply empty and he's loving through me. It's that he's actually transforming me to love. He's act actually making me to be a lover, you see. Now it's his love, it comes from him and through him. But, it's in me. And that's amazing to me. But notice this, something else as well. He says, notice, he says, verse eight, and the same, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because, I'm writing this, I'm able to write this as this new commandment, this new sense of that which is, you've had always, but this new commandment, I'm writing because the darkness is passing away and the true light is, is already shining. You see, it isn't just that I've changed because of the love of Christ, this change, transformation in me. I'm a new creature, born again, as Jesus said. But now, you see, I live in this new realm. 
of light. See, darkness is the realm in which Satan rules and sin dominates. Light is the realm in which Jesus rules and love dominates. The love of Christ is evident there. And he says the darkness is passing away, which means the day will come and the darkness will be no more. And the light is now shining. It's been inaugurated. It's here. But we're never to live in twilight. We can only live in darkness or light. If we're in Christ, we are in the light. If we're not, we are in darkness. It's simply the way it is, the truth, you see. Even though both light and darkness exist now in the world that we've come. Jesus came. He's the light of the world, as he said. If you walk in me, you walk in the light, not in darkness. He says, I am the, the light of the world. In fact, Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae this, in Colossians in chapter 1, in verse 13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, this realm, this domain, this dominion, this power. Uh, he's, he's, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One translation has it like this. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transplanted us. I like that one better than transferred. Transferred, I need something stronger than that. I need to be transplanted into this kingdom of light. That's who you are, who I am as a believer in Jesus. The apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we've been transplanted. And now we live in this realm where the, where the rule of Christ dominates. Christ is king. And here's how we're to live in this new realm. We're to love as he's loved us. And John says, if you don't, you can have no assurance. If you don't, it's going to be as if you walk in darkness and not in light and there's no assurance in the darkness. You can't see it. You've got to believe the message. You've got a desire to be obedient. To love each other as Christ has loved us. And because this love is in us, you see, because we're in this realm of light, then the Apostle Paul can make this appeal. And again, this was in our call to worship this morning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. So, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, listen, if Jesus means anything, 
If he means anything at all, then I can make this appeal. Because you're in the light. Because this is true of you. I'm not calling you to be someone you're not. I'm calling you to be someone you are. I'm not calling you to live for you to live somewhere you don't. I'm calling you to live, calling you to live somewhere you do to remind you that you're here. And so he says, I want you to have the same mind that Jesus did. Now I must confess that being a, somewhat of an academic, when I think of having someone else's mind, I think, oh, I'll know what they know. I think I'll be as smart as they are. I'll have all this great information and so forth and so on. Paul doesn't mean that kind of mind. He means attitude. He means have his disposition. I want you to be like Christ in this. And so he says, having the same mind, being a full of God, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Can't you see it on the night he was betrayed? Can't you see it? He's taking on the form of a servant. When he walks into the room with the, the disciples and they're ready for the Passover meal, Jesus looks like dressed the rest of them. In fact, if you looked at it at that moment, you might say, oh, he's the master here. But moments later, if you looked at that picture, you wouldn't think Jesus was the master at all. Give no appearance of that. He was washing their feet. You probably wouldn't even notice him because you wouldn't notice a slave you wouldn't even notice him do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count each other as more significant than yourself that's what he did that's the love of Christ that's the love that's in us that's really our new disposition that's really the new place where we live to deny it and not love. As a believer in Jesus, is to be fake. Because our true lives are lives of love. We mustn't deny that. And you might say, this is all well and good, but I look look at my own life and I, I... I realize I'm in this new realm of light and and all that, but yet I still see tragedy and I still see difficulty and I still see debilitating illnesses and I still see war and I still see people treating each other badly and and I enter into that even. And I know my temper and my impatience and my lack of compassion and my lack of mercy and my unforgiveness and towards others and all of that, I still see it. And you're telling me I'm new and you're telling me that, that, that I live in this new realm. How can that even be? And I say, well, you see it, don't you? You see it, don't you? That's the light in which you live. You wouldn't have seen it before, but now you really see it. And when you see it, then you realize, I need to confess this. This isn't who I really am. This isn't who I'm really to be. And so I confess this as being contrary to the way that God has made me to be. And I, and I confess it. It's the great thing about our Sunday liturgy, every Sunday, we rehearse this together. We come in, we see the glory of God as we sing, and then we confess our sins. Why? Because we see him and we see us. And then we receive his forgiveness. And then we hear his word, and then we leave to do it, you see. Years ago, had to be years ago, because I was pastoring a different church, and I've been here longer 
than we can count. But I was in a church in Colorado, and, and um, a friend of mine from seminary classmates that was visiting, and uh, he looked at our bulletin. He was going to come that next day to come to church with us, and, and he looked, and there was no prayer of confession, and he, he just looked it over, and he looked at me and says, your people don't sin? <laughs> and I said, oh, we probably should change that, shouldn't we? Um, we see it, you see. When you see your lack of love, when you see your ill temper, when you see your lack of forgiveness, when you see your lack of mercy, when you see your lack of compassion, when you hear yourself gossip, when you hear yourself slander, when you hear yourself with a critical spirit, there's something in you that comes and you say, okay, I I am in the light because I see it. Please forgive me. When we see others in their sin, We should be sympathetic and empathetic towards them. Well, not to condone their sin, no, no, no. But somehow in the gentleness with which the Lord has treated us and the kindness with which the Lord has treated us and the forgiveness the Lord has granted to us and the help that he's given us to overcome, that should be our attitude when we see others in sin, not a critical, not a critical spirit as if I haven't done the very same things, thought the very same things, said the very same things. See, I see it now. I get it. I understand. Oh, that's the gentleness of Christ. Many of you know this expression from the prophet Isaiah that I live on. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break and a burning flax he will not snuff out. He says, that's the kindness. That's the gentleness of Jesus. You know, you're walking through a field and of these big reeds sticking up and you're bruised when it's right ready to break. If you just brush by it, it will break. But, but Jesus can jump all over it and strengthen it. It doesn't break at all. Or a burning flax, you know, you, you blow out a candle and there's that very little end, you know, it's just ready to go out. And, and Jesus can blow on that. It doesn't go out, it bursts into flames. And we'd be that gentle, you see. We need to rely upon him to, to work in us so that we can really be that gentle and be that kind in the midst of situation. The gentle answer turns away wrath. It, it really does. It really does, and we practice it so little. See, we need to love like, like that. But we see it, and we realize, I need to. And, 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 and if, you, if you see your own inabilities, you're living in the light. And, you, and, and what do you do? You, you turn to the Lord, and you say, help me, please. Work in me, please. Teach me, please. Give me the capacity to love like you loved, you see. And when tragedies come, we empathize, we help, we, we do what we can to help others in the, in the midst of it. But we also realize when tragedies come in our own life, when we're walking in the light, we realize the greatest tragedy of all has been averted because of Christ. That is the wrath of God. Whatever is happening isn't the wrath of God to us. It might be his gracious discipline, and it might be heavy upon us for a season. But we know it's not his wrath upon us. And we know that whatever else, we'll never experience that because that's been taken. We see it, you see. And we don't despair in the light because we, we know that Christ is ruling and reigning. And we know one day the light will come in all of its fullness. Let me end with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in the last century in England. I've quoted him many times. Um, probably more than I've quoted anybody, I suspect, over the years. Um, 
And I'm going to quote him here because there was no one known for his orthodoxy, his love of theology, his precision in understanding both the biblical text and the theological implications of it than Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he writes this. He says, let me put it like this. It is not our intellectual opinion that proclaims truly what we are. You know, it's possible for us to be perfectly orthodox, but to be unloving. But your, orthodox, your orthodoxy is of no value to you if you do not love your brother. You can talk about this doctrine intellectually. You can be a defender of the faith, and yet the spirit in which you're defending it may be denying the very doctrine you're defending. He says, this is a terrible test. Orthodoxy is essential, but it's not enough. If you're not loving your brother, says John in effect, you're in darkness and you have not the love of Christ. To love your brother is much more important than orthodoxy. Yes, it's more important, and here's how he defines orthodoxy. It's more important than mere mechanical correctness in your conduct and behavior in an ethical sense. There are people who, like the rich young ruler, can say, all these things I've done since my youth, they're not guilty of the gross sins which they've seen in others, and yet their spirit, as they criticize, is a portrayal that they do not love their brother. Harshness, the criticizing spirit, all that is a negation of the spirit of love is something that rises in my heart and nature, and it is, therefore, the proving positive of whether I belong to him or not. If you know these things, says the Lord Jesus, happy are you if you do them. If I, he also says in effect, in the same message, whom you call Lord and Master have washed your feet, how much more, in a sense, ought you to wash one another's feet and be loving towards one another and be anxious to serve one another? This thing is inevitable. If we belong to him, we must be manifesting the spirit and type of life. There's a story told about John the Apostle. I suppose it's true that in his old age that they would sort of just kind of bring him into the congregation, into the church, and he would just raise up his head and say, love each other. And someone once asked John, why is that all you say now? He says, well, I'm old. He says, because I know if they're loving each other in the name of Christ, they belong to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we'd be known by this love that we have for one another. Please, I pray. manifested among us it's in us you say and if it isn't then we don't belong to you but but we do so it's in us so help us really to love each other to care for each other to bless each other to think the best of each other to hold each other in high esteem to do for each other all that we can do they might be blessed and helped that we might forgive as we've been forgiven and to 
be merciful as we've received mercy and be compassionate as we've received compassion. To care as we've been so wonderfully cared for by you. And Father, we would be humble that we'd have the very mind of Christ to consider the interests of others as even our own. To honor one another and bless each other. To really love each other. Forgive us when we haven't. Strengthen us that we might. Father, I know there are needs today. There are physical needs. Some are sick. We think of those uh, in our congregation who are various and sundry illnesses. Certainly the COVID virus we're aware of. Some suffer under it even now. We do pray for our president, God, and for others and government who are experiencing this virus that you would, you would heal them. Be kind to them, Father. Uh, restore them quickly. And other illnesses too, uh, just because we have this virus doesn't mean that cancer stopped or heart disease or any of the other things. And so, Father, we pray for those among us who are suffering in various ways physically, those who find themselves uh, suffering emotionally, with anxiety and even depression during these days, that you would help them, give them strength and encouragement. For those who suffer financially, I know, relationally, because in part the stress upon us, but just the fact that we, we find ourselves struggling relations, relationally often, even in good times, if you will. So I pray, God, that you would be with us. Please help us to love one another well. Pray that others would look upon us and say, see how they love each other. And may God, as we love each other well, that we're filled with a great sense of gratitude for how you've worked in us. Great sense of gratitude that you're working in us and you give us this wonderful gift to see that you've changed us. And we see ourselves being patient and kind and have this self-control over what we say and think that we'll realize, oh yes, it is true. The love of God really has been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Grant us this assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. You might be thinking that this word that we've just shared together is impossible to love like that. And if that's what you're thinking, this benediction is particularly for you. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and always. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy